All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to finish up the chapter. We're going to go from verses 20 through 26. And the title of the study is Becoming Vessels of Honor. Um, we're going to look at that uh, idea of becoming a vessel of honor and serving the Lord's purposes. We're going to talk about fleeing sinful passions and pursuing godliness and becoming a godly communicator. A lot of this is primarily set, of course, in the context of a, a pastor who is leading a congregation, dealing with false teachers. But the other thing that we need to keep in mind is, although that might be the primary context of what's going on, there's an application to our own lives. And so we will be looking at those and applying them to our own homes and to our own communication inside of marriage. So let's begin, though, looking at verse, and we'll read at verse 19, because we, we did cover it last in our last study, but I think it would be helpful to read it just to kind of get the full context of this section. It says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So we'll begin in verses 20 through 22 with the idea of becoming a vessel of honor. And so we talked about how there are two types of vessels in the house of the Lord. There's vessels that are the gold and silver and they're honorable. They serve the purposes of the Lord. And then there are those vessels that are wood and clay. They're dishonorable, and they are not serving the purposes of the Lord, but actually stand in the path of what God wants to accomplish. I would imagine that Timothy would be one of those that's being seen as a vessel of honor, and Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are those troublemakers that we've been talking about, that are preaching another message about the resurrection that is causing the shipwreck of some people's faith, they are the ones that are those dishonorable vessels. But there is, unlike a vessel of wood and clay or silver and gold, we as vessels, we have a choice of how we're going to live it out. A vessel of honor is made one way, and that's just the way it is. But the Lord calls us to repent. The Lord calls us to be set apart for his purposes, for his glory, and for his honor. Paul's going to expand upon the second statement of verse 19, where he calls for those to depart from iniquity. He says there's a seal. God knows those who are his. That's one side of the coin. The other side is that we are to depart from iniquity. And so he then moves into the idea of vassals, those that are honorable, those that are not honorable. And so Timothy is told to cleanse himself from the latter. That would be from the vessels of dishonor, which in this context would seem to be 
these false teachers that were ruining and harming and damaging the faith of other people. And so he says, keep yourself from them. Don't be like them. And as you do this, you're going to make yourself a vessel that is usable for the Lord. I think all of us should be ready to stop and ask ourselves this question. Am I a vessel that is usable and you know, uh, that God would be pleased to work through? Or am I caught up in something else? There are three truths about vessels of honor that are mentioned primarily there in verse 21. And that is, first of all, is that a vessel of honor is sanctified. Sanctified. That's the Greek word hagiazo. It's the idea of being dedicated, consecrated, set apart for the purposes of the Lord. The New Testament was written in the Greek language. And the Old Testament, of course, was written in the Hebrew, but it was translated also into what is called the Septuagint. You may be in the notes of your Bible, we'll see times... Uh, Roman numerals LXX, and that's a reference to the Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament. Well, because we have the whole Old Testament written in Greek, and you have the New Testament written in Greek as well, you can take a New Testament word, and you can go back into the Old Testament and see how that word was used. And it's used exactly the way we would expect. But here's one example of that uh, word um, of being uh, sanctified, or the Greek word hagiazo, is it's Exodus 28:41, and it says, "So you shall put them on Aaron and your brother, and on his sons with them." So we're talking about the priests. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them. There's our word that they may minister to me as priests. When we are sanctified for the Lord's purposes, we become those that can minister. On his behalf, we get to be those vessels of honor that God is going to deploy and use for his glory and for his honor. Our lives are to be set apart, our lives are to be wholly designated for his purposes. 2 Corinthians 6 5 through 17 says, And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with the idols? For you are the temple of God. That's a pretty astounding statement, isn't it? As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Become a vessel of honor. Be sanctified that I might be able to work and move in your life. Peter echoes the same idea in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 3, he speaks of how we have spent enough of our last life, our former life before Christ, of seeking our fleshly desires, and that we've wasted it, but now it's time to do the will of the Lord, no longer the will of the Gentiles. I pray that something you feel and you sense as a follower of Jesus Christ, this urging of the Spirit of God to live for the Lord, and to come out and it's like I've spent enough of my time before becoming a Christian of pursuing other things. Now all of my time, my energy, my goals, my efforts, they are to pursue him and to seek what he wants for my life. I don't want to waste any more time is essentially what Peter is saying. Don't waste any more time. So when we 
And for Timothy, when he would separate himself from this false teaching and distance himself, he says, cleanse yourself from them. Then he says, you're going to be sanctified. Now I can do something for you. And that's the very next thing that we, we read there is that we'll be useful to the master. And hopefully, again, that is a desire that you have. Reading there at the end of verse 21, we'll be sanctified and then useful for the master. Beneficial to him. Now, obviously, we, we know the benefit that he is to us. I mean, without him, we don't have life. Without him, we don't have creation. Without him, we don't have redemption. We don't have the hope of overcoming in this world. But through him, all of these things are given to us. But, it, but have you ever thought of being useful to him? Have you ever thought about that, that God wants to, your life to be beneficial to his purposes? Serviceable for the things that he has determined. Again, another cross-reference in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. What was the price that was paid for you? The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a price that was paid to redeem you, to redeem us. So therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. We are not our own. When we came and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we gave up the claim to live our life the way we want to live it and to submit to the will of the Lord. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you need to take up your cross and you also need to do something to yourself. What is that? Deny yourself. Jesus said, if you seek to live your life for yourself, you're going to lose it. But if you'll lose it for my sake, you're going to find it. All through scripture, the lesson is taught to us that we are not our own. That when we come to Jesus Christ, we surrender we relinquish the control and the desires that we have. And we say, Lord, what are your desires? And so vessels of honors, they are those that are sanctified. But they're also those that are like, here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. What pleases you? That's what I'm after. And then the last thing we find there in verse 21 is that we would be prepared for every good work. So we're sanctified, we're set apart, now we're useful, and now we are also prepared. And the best way you can prepare yourself is to spend time in the Word of God. This is what we read, is that the, the, the Word of God will thoroughly equip you for every good work. And so we spend time in the Word, discovering the heart and the passion of the Lord. What are the things that He wants accomplished in His kingdom? And as we see that and yield to that, now we are prepared by the Lord. But this preparation to be used by the Lord began even before you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is the, the predetermined will of God is that we would be useful that we would be prepared for the good works. If you will, before you were even born, there was a, you had a, your name was there, and there was a list of things that God had determined that you would do in your lifetime, that I would do in my lifetime, for his glory and for his honor. And then I would walk them out. And then I would obey him. 
And so I would hope that as you hear this, the question that's going through your mind is, do I know what that is and am I walking it out? And if you are not, then you should give yourself tirelessly to that end until the Lord returns for you. That you can hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. There are specific things that God has determined for your life. And there are many things that will compete to take you away from this. And what we see there at the end of verse 21 is for every good work. You've been prepared not just to do something. You've been prepared for a good work, to do the work of the king. And that should just, again, it should light up our mind with the possibilities of living that way of being so fully committed to Jesus Christ and his kingdom that I find myself right in the middle of his will, walking it out and living it out. And it's a good work. I pray you know that about the Lord. I pray you know that about the kingdom of God, that this is what he asks of you, what he asks of me and and asks of us as a church. It's not just something. It is a good work. It's his work. And therefore, we should dive headfirst into those things because, after all, we are not our own. We are his. He goes on in verse 22 to talk about the kinds of things that should move us into action or or send us running. What should move us? Well, verse 22 says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So the first thing is negative. There's a word to flee sinful things, to flee youthful lusts. Now, he doesn't say here what those youthful lusts are. So what is the context? Well, you're going to see it. Uh, we read it. But in verse 23, we start talking about foolish and ignorant arguments and all kinds of wrangling and a war of words. So for young Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, don't allow your youthfulness To draw you into unnecessary arguments. And that would seem to be the primary youthful lust that he should flee. But let's be honest here. That's not something that's only for young people to hear. All of us need to hear that. No matter what stage or age. Now here's the thing. Is that hopefully for us as we follow the Lord that we're being changed and transformed. We're learning how to have conversations about you know, delicate issues without blowing it up and turning it into some kind of, you know, war of words. And that that can be hard for a a young person. But an old person who doesn't submit to the Lord and be transformed by the Lord, they're going to have a difficult time as well. My great-grandmother used to say, you know, if she heard somebody say, well, that's that's a grumpy old lady. She goes, well, she used to be a grumpy young lady. (laughs) Some wisdom from a great-grandmother. You know, you, you, you are, you know, what you have been your life. So if you are growing and you're in kindness and generosity, then you will be that way when you get older. So you can be a, a, an older person who is still engaged in youthful lust, which in this context seems to be primarily getting engaged in unnecessary destructive conversations. But it doesn't end there. There's all type of lust that we should be warned of. I think one example of somebody who understood this principle and walked it out long before it was stated was Joseph. And we spent quite a bit of time studying him when we were recently in Genesis. 
Remember Potiphar's wife came to him and daily was trying to get him to engage in sex with her. And he would say no and no and no. And one day she just grabbed hold of him and tried to pull him into her bedroom. And he went running. And as he ran, she ripped off his cloak. And then she accused him of trying to rape her. And here's the proof I've got his cloak. Which in reality, he was running from it. And he's like, how can I commit this great sin, this, commit this great wickedness? And he's like, I can't do it. So we need to learn how to flee, run in the opposite direction of any fleshly lust. Old or young, whether it's primarily considered a youthful lust or it's just considered a lust, we all need to learn the practice of running from those things. And here's the reality. God has said he always provides a way of escape for every single thing we've ever been tempted with. You've never been tempted, and I've never been tempted by something that God has not allowed a way for us to escape, which may trouble some of our minds right now. Because, like, wait a minute. I don't remember seeing the escape. I mean, I was in the midst of this situation, and I was praying for the Lord to give me deliverance. Well, probably your off-ramp came well before you were engaged in the midst of that sin. The time to pray to, to give me deliverance is not when you're engaged in the middle of the sin. It's when you see it coming. It's when you see Mrs. Potiphar across the room. You're like, oh, Lord God, give me help and give me strength. Here she comes again. And to begin to look for the escape route. It's like driving down a road. I remember this one road in, in California um, forever was not finished. And at the end of it, it just kind of you know, if you went far enough, you were going to, you know, you're going to destroy your car. It wasn't a cliff, but it just was an unfinished road. And so all of these warning signs, you know, road ends, construction ahead, you know, half a mile, exit now, you know, and the barricades. There's your off-ramp. And that's the way it is with the, the Lord. He's speaking to you and he's warning you in your heart. Be careful of this meeting. Don't have this meeting Exit now. Cancel the meeting. Don't go there. Don't rehearse this in your mind. And, and we end up blowing right by the deliverance that God wants to give. The Lord is jealous over you. And so you have heard the warnings long before that moment came. But you know, well, let me just be really blunt with it. How about that? You know, if you are a single person that's trying to walk in holiness and purity, here's your off-ramp. Don't go park in a dark alley with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Stay in a public place. You know, you stay in a public place, you're not going to have an issue. But if you, if, you, if you end up going to this place and, you know, it's all romantic and it's there and it's passionate, and in the midst of this passion you're saying, oh, Lord, where's the off-ramp? It was Starbucks. It was, it was a coffee shop. It was going with your other, you know, eight friends out to an event. And so we need to learn to understand and discern where it is we should flee. Now, listen, you still need to flee in the midst of that, but I'm just saying good luck when you're in the midst of that passionate moment of sin. You've already engaged in it. So we need to look for it before it happens. We need to learn, as we talked about when we talk, uh, were studying the life of Joseph, to rehearse righteousness. We flee youthful lust, but it says here, pursue godliness. And the idea, he gives us four things. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord. 
Those are four things that we are to pursue. Righteousness is living for the right things. And of course, in Philippians 1.11, we're told that the fruits of righteousness are by Jesus Christ. Where does righteousness come from? It comes from John chapter 15, you and me abiding in the Lord. And as we abide in the Lord, we're given strength to live a godly life. And now we have the power to overcome. Now we're given the strength to live it out. But you know, if you have both hands clinging on to sin and saying, God, give me, give me victory, uh, you got to drop what's in your hands. You need to flee those youthful lusts. You need to put distance between you and that circumstance and that situation. You need to agree with God, and now you need to give yourself to the all-out pursuit. You need to hunt down righteousness. I want to do the right things. I want to have a life of faith. I want to pursue faith. That is the idea of going from faith to faith. Now, hopefully today, if you've been walking with Jesus for five years or 10 years or 20 years, hopefully you have grown in your faith. You've pursued a life of faith, and it's easier to believe God for the things that challenge you and press you today than it was all those years ago because you've experienced him. You've pursued a life of faith, and you're like, God's going to come through. And maybe you've been around a person like that. I'm like, you're wringing your hands, and they're like, God's going to show up. He always shows up. And maybe even it's irritated you. Oh, come on. We've got to be practical. We need to do something. I'm not worried about God's going to show up. He's going to do something. And, and sure enough, the Lord shows up. And he is able to uh, deliver. And the faith grows. We need to pursue love. Is this a love for God or a love for others? And I think the answer is yes. There should be a pursuit of a love for God. And there should be a pursuit of a love for other people. And then he says, pursue peace with all those who call on the Lord. Our actions should always be for peace with one another. You don't pursue the conversation. You don't pursue that interaction with that person to create division. Now listen, we have seen that there's a time and there's a place to confront those that do damage to people's faith. This is what Timothy has been exhorted to do. But that represents a small portion of the conversations we ever have with people. That represents a small you know, portion of all the interactions that you will have with friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ. Rarely do we ever have to cleanse ourselves from those dishonorable vessels that are ruining people's faith. Sometimes we do. And when we do, it is never a pleasant experience. But most of our interactions, a vast majority, should be ones that are pursuing peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord. Now listen, I think in the last 18 months, and I mentioned this in the last time I was here and, and taught, well, was that the enemy has done a great job in the last 18 months of getting the church divided against herself. And we are fighting about things we never even fought about before in the history of the church. And we're, we have our opinions and we have our views and this is it and this is right. But let me ask you, how important is this issue going to be in two years? Or if we were to lift you up and we were to take you and to plop you down in some jail in the middle of, you know, Iran, how big of an issue is that going to be? Are you still going to be divided with that brother or that sister? If you two are locked to cell, not talking to you because you have a different view of, of masks or vaccinations or election fraud than I do. 
I think you're going to learn to get along if that's your only roommate, cellmate. What do you think? I think those issues are going to become rather insignificant. And the truth of the word of God, they are going to become the things that we really cling to. Listen, have your opinion. Be right about it. I'm just saying we need to stop dividing and arguing over these things that are, you don't have a verse for them. And I don't have a verse for my opinion. I've got an opinion. I think it's right. That's why it's mine. You've got an opinion and you think it's right. That's why you hold that position. And so there are those things that we don't agree with, but we need to be pursuing peace with those who call on the Lord. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says that we should communicate. We're going to talk about communicating like a servant. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. We are to be those that are, that, are, that are avoiding foolish disputes and ignorant, you know, uh, arguments. Do, but he doesn't say what they are, which in one sense is kind of beautiful and genius because we can't say, well, that's a foolish and ignorant dispute. Now, now the whole, you know, gamut of conversations are able to be considered and asked, is this a foolish and ignorant dispute? Well, let me tell you what is definitely a foolish and ignorant dispute. It's when there is strife generated from it. You got your Bible. You can read it. You can see it. I'm not saying something profound. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing they generate strife. They're to be avoided. They're to be left alone. And so we have these things that are going on. And we need to learn to communicate like a servant. We are servants the word servant is, in the Greek language, it's the word doulos. So let me give you just a, a couple of uh, ways in which this word is, has been defined. It says, number one, it's just a slave. So, you know, a servant or slave. You're a slave of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. But metaphorically, it refers to one who gives himself up to another's will, those whose service is used by Christ and extending and advancing his cause among men. Devoted to another to the disregard of one's interest. In our conversations, we should be about the work and the agenda of the Lord, not my agenda. It's not about Troy and making his points. It's about, Lord, what do you want? I am your slave. How do you want me to communicate in this conversation? That's what's important. That's what really matters. And so when we are in a conversation with a person, the question we should be asking is, Lord, does this please you? Lord, are you happy with this conversation? Does this bring honor and glory? Lord, am I talking to them the way you want them to be spoken to right now? And of course, if you are engaged in foolish and ignorant disputes, the answer is no, we are not. And we need to adjust it. So when I deal with a person that maybe is troubling me, my actions should reflect Christ's will and not my fleshly response. <laughs> you know, this is talking about a very specific situation. But again, the application, we can, we can apply it in a lot of different ways. Let's just talk about, um, how about husbands and wives and the way we communicate inside of our marriage. Foolish and ignorant disputes. I think if you speak to most married couples, they would say, most of the arguments we've had 
are foolish and ignorant. What are we even fighting about? I don't know, but I don't like the way you talk to me. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, uh, anybody, anybody relate? Okay, me and all right, two of us. Okay. It's just me and you, Joe. All right, Ace just joined us too. So there's three of us that, that get into these arguments and we're fighting. It's like you lose track about what am I even, what are we even arguing about? Well, what you said, you know, was this. Yeah, but you said, and then it's just, it goes and it goes and it does not ever, the plane never lands. It just keeps on going. But we got to remember in those moments, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ who wants me to communicate in a way that does not generate strife. Now, for some of you, the way God has wired you, praise the Lord, is that when you see that, you know, tense situation, you're just kind of like, I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to back off. And, and part of that is your own growth and maturity in Christ. Part of that is just the way you are, you're wired in your personality. Praise the Lord for people like you. Because then there's people like me that am not wired that way. I just, it's like sometimes those conversations are like I'm a bug being attracted to the blue light. I just can't leave it alone. And, and, and God has worked in my life. But I'm just telling you how I'm wired. I don't think, oh, I need to be quiet. That's not my first thought. That's where I get to as the Spirit of God works in me. My first thought is, I need to correct that. I have something to say. You shouldn't think like that. You should think. That is my first response. And so we got to learn, and we're going to get some, some really five great points in just a moment of how to communicate properly. But we need to first know that we are slaves of the Lord obligated to communicate in every relationship, particularly the ones that are of the household, with those of the household of faith, in a way that pleases him. So let's look at the middle half of verse 24 and the first portion of verse 25. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but here it is, five points, be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And so let's, let's go ahead. Actually, I'm missing one. Let's see, verse 25. Um, and then verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the, the devil. So let's look at this. Number one, we should not quarrel. Okay? So uh, looking in the middle of verse 24, but not quarrel. The word quarrel actually means to engage in a war of words. A war of words. In other words, we are arguing about what a person meant when they used that word or they said what they said. We assign meaning to it. They say, I didn't mean that, but we won't let it go. Yes, you did. You know, no, I didn't. And then it goes back and forth. And then somewhere in the conversation says, oh, were you some kind of new circus you know, uh, event that you read people's minds now? Don't ever say that, by the way. It just doesn't help the conversation. Um, and so we have to make certain we don't get in these war of words with one another. And, and this is what it means to quarrel. A strong leader is not one who starts fights and argues about pointless matters, nor is a leader one who provokes arguments even over weighty matters. There may be a place to defend it, but we're not there to simply provoke an argument. Strength should be found in calm, loving, well-thought-out answers to the objections and the conflict that's going on. 
And really, a word of warning. If you're a person that's given to quarreling, Troy, then you need to know that that often the enemy will find other people that like to do just what you like to do. And you'll find that there's always an argument to be had. And so we need to learn how to use language that's not going to inflame a situation. So number one, how do we communicate properly? Don't get into a war of words. Well, you said, well, I didn't mean that. But you said, let it go. Secondly, he says that we are to be gentle to all. To all. Not just to those that think like you, but to those that are in opposition to you. This word gentle was frequently used by Greek writers as characterizing a nurse with a trying child or a teacher who had a rebellious student, or parents towards their children. That's the word gentle here. It's pretty, it's a, it's, it's a, gives you a very clear word picture of somebody who's trying to calm a child that is, that is upset. A gentle, you don't calm a little baby by being agitated with the little baby. That doesn't work. You got to be gentle with them. You can't help those that are rebellious by inflaming their rebellion And you aren't going to be able to parent your children by being a hothead. That's not going to get you what you want. So we're to be gentle to all. Parents, you're to be gentle with your children. Children, you should be gentle with your siblings and even your parents and all people. And I would expand this to say not just what you speak with your mouth, but also what you type with your fingers. We need to be gentle. Again, I think the enemy is just like, he's like just watches, he throws another lure out there. Watch them bite the churches. There they are. They're fighting against each other. Got them hooked. They're ripping each other apart. They're dismantling other people. And, and I think we failed in this gentleness department. My speech should be marked by a gentleness. And then we keep on reading that um, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but gentle, but able to teach. Okay, that's what should be happening with my communication. And again, the context is like disputes, right? So in the conversation, the goal is to actually instruct and to teach somebody who's at odds or are they out of step with the Lord. And so I want to have that opportunity to communicate. And then it says that we are to be patient. And this is the only place where this word for patience is used in the New Testament. New Testament. It means uh, tolerant, pertaining to enduring difficulties without becoming angry or upset. It means to be forbearing, patient. This is like a, a one word, if you can just apply it to your conversations, is that we should show patience as other people express their opinion, as they put forth an idea maybe that you don't even agree with, that hear it and then respond to it, teach. Because he This is the deal. You may say the right thing. You may give the right piece of instruction. But if you're not gentle and you're not patient, who's really going to hear you? Because we don't hear it when people talk to us that way. Now, we should. If truth is delivered to us from the word of God, even in a less than perfect way, we should still hear it and receive it. But you know how hard that is. I know what they're saying is right, but their attitude and the way they're talking to me makes it so hard to receive what they have to say. So we need to be patient. And then the last thing that we read here is that we need to correct with humility. 
correct with humility. It's the beginning of verse 25. And it's those that are in opposition. So this is not some kind of like, you know, pleasant sit-down conversation over, you know, a cup of coffee. It's so good to see you. The context is opposition is going on. And so there's a correction that comes, but it's with humility. I, 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 I have communicated, I have used tones, I've used words in such a way that it's like a lifeline that's being thrown out to you. So that in the midst of your opposition, in the midst of your, uh, your understanding of things, you can actually receive what I have and I can, I'm able to pull you up onto this place to, to embrace the word of the Lord or the truth or to see the situation. Now, all of this is true. But there still is Hymenaeus and Philetus that he had to cleanse himself from. In other words, wash your hands of these people. Be done with them. Because what they are doing to the body of Christ is causing this shipwreck of faith. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he kind of contrasted these two forms of communication. In 2 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, he says, Now I, Paul... Myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Okay, so there's a gentleness. Who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. There are those that were saying, hey, this guy's a sinner. He's doing this. He's got all this. He says, listen, I'm asking you, and I'm being bold right now, although I've still got the gentleness of Christ, but I'm being bold and calling you to repentance because when I get there and I see you face to face, I don't want to have to be bold with you. I want it to be a different form of communication. So there is that place, there is that time where we have to make bold corrections. Um, but of course, the, the goal is to be able to not have to have that and of course, again, limited to some pretty unique situations. So as a husband and wife, as a parent with your kids, maybe this is not the way the conversation has been sounding in your house. It's not the way it's been going on. And it's more of like a, a beat down from the top, you know, verbally. Listen, you got to change it. You're a slave of Jesus Christ. You are not your own. And it doesn't matter if you're right. You do not have permission from King Jesus to humiliate that person and rip them apart with your words. But I'm right. Kind of. But who can receive it? It's wasted. You are to communicate the way Jesus communicates to you. Has Jesus ever woke you up in the morning and say, you lazy bum, why don't you ever? I don't think he's ever done that. How does he communicate to you? It's, it's in, you know, it's what we know. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not his fierce wrath. Oh, he can warn. Read the book of Revelation, those seven letters to the seven churches. Most of them received a severe rebuke. But we are to represent the Lord and how he communicates. And there's five points that I would just say, lay it over your life. And look and see if you're communicating properly. And, and this goes for your kids, too. you got to communicate this way with your children. Just because your mom and dad doesn't mean you get to be in the flesh with your kids. You've got to correct them correctly. You've got to speak to them in a way that they can hear what you have to say. I'm not saying it's easy, 
but this is how we are to live. So we wrap it up here in verses 25 through 26, the second half of verse 25. And here are the goals of our communication. And maybe, that is a, maybe that's what's missing. Maybe the goal that you have in mind is just to win the argument or just to get it off your chest. I just need to vent. Really? You got a verse for that? Because we sure say it a lot. I just had to say these things. Really? You did? You had to. Because why? Because I felt like I needed to. But you're a slave of Jesus Christ who's told you that you are to represent his interests. I realize that probably hit pretty close to home right there. But really, yeah, have a conversation. Be honest with things. But venting, meaning I have the right now to yell and scream and say mean things. No, you don't. You don't. So here are the goals in communication. It's not to vent. Sorry. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil... Having, escaped, having been taken captive by him to do his will. What are we trying to do? We're trying to bring the person to repentance. Well, they don't need to repent. Well, then what are you arguing about? That would fall under the what? One of the foolish and ignorant disputes that we are to what? Avoid. So if we're not calling them to repentance, what are we calling them to? And so the desire is to see a person repent and come to a, a, a change of thought and understanding. And if they come to your perspective after this long, drawn-out, ungodly conversation, would you call it repentance? Or they just now see it your way? The second thing is that truth would be known so that they may know the truth. Not your truth, not my truth. Not this political truth, the truth, the truth of the Lord. And so we seek to communicate the will and the ways of the Lord. And the goal is to see that truth be established in that conversation. And number three is that they could escape the snare of the devil. They've been taken captive. So you maybe are talking to somebody that has decided to engage in living a certain way. You coming and screaming and yelling at them is not going to help. They've been ensnared by the devil. And so what needs to happen is an honest, loving communication. Yeah, speak the truth, but do it in love. You can even say, you need to repent and you need to cling to this truth. You're holding on to a lie. You've been deceived by Satan. All of those things are fine to say. It's just how you say it. And when you see somebody who is being taken captive by the devil and you think that you're going to yell them out of that captivity, you're deceiving yourself. You're not going to yell them out of that captivity. But you can, through the ways in which we've been told to communicate those five things, we can <clears throat> give God every opportunity <coughs> excuse me, to work in that circumstance. Being gentle, being humble. And so... This is something we do a lot of. We do a lot of communicating with one another. And our goals are clear. It's to see truth established. It's not to win the argument, and it's not to run people off. So as we close here, we should be becoming vessels of honor. And one, you know, being a vessel of honor, as you can see, a large part of it is our communication, how we talk to people. 
this is what vessels of honor do. They, they communicate in a particular way. It doesn't matter how passionate you are about something. The word of God is for you and it is for me and we must follow it. But maybe you've been not a vessel of honor. Maybe you've been living for your own purposes. You've been pursuing those sinful passions. The pursuit of godliness, not high on the list. I just want to invite you to an incredible journey to follow the Lord. I, I love following Jesus Christ. I love living for him. I love doing his will. I love hearing God speak through his word and being around other people like you that are passionate about following Jesus Christ. And if that does not appeal to you, I would encourage you to say, God, show me what, I, what I'm missing. Show me what's there. Because the Lord doesn't want you to be on the outside. He wants you to be a vessel of honor, engaged in good works, not self-indulgent works. Well, I just got to be who I am. No, you don't. The Bible says deny yourself and take up the cross and follow Jesus. Live for the king. That's what we should be doing. Become a godly communicator. I challenge all of you to take a fresh look at your conversation, whether it be written or whether it be spoken, and ask, am I conducting myself as a vessel of honor in the way I deal with opposition in conversation? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. You would call us, Lord, into this most privileged place of being a vessel of honor. Not a vessel of dishonor. Pursuing our own fleshly lusts. But Lord, seeing that you have laid down your life for us. And so it's for you that I live my life. That I pursue the passions of my life. Lord, help us to put you first. And Lord, help us in our conversation, in our communication. That would always be about pursuing truth. That would be about seeing people come to repentance. That it would be about seeing people liberated from the captivity of, the, of Satan. And Lord, we are in need of a fresh outpouring of your spirit in this way. And the church, capital C, Lord, we need this. And help us, Lord. Give you just a moment to respond to the Lord. And if you're thinking, oh, I can't be a vessel of honor, I've messed up too much. No, you, you can become a vessel of honor. The Lord wants to use your life for his glory, for his kingdom, for his purposes. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, and you confess him with your mouth, you believe that he rose, you will be saved. And now you pursue righteousness. I just want to say to you, the most miserable thing you can do as a Christian is to be saved and, and to say, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to pursue these sinful things, but I'm not going to pursue righteousness either. And to be caught in this middle ground, such a miserable place to be. You have to deal with all the struggles of temptation, but you never get to experience the joy of pursuing righteousness and faith and love and peace with others. Why don't you just be done with lesser things as the song says, that we would be done 
with it. And we would pursue the Lord with all of our heart. We thank you, Lord, that you hear us when we call. In the name of Jesus, amen.